our eyes. We're going to sing that chorus one more time and just, a, just the ammo to do it. To chapter 24 this morning. He is not here and neither are any of our fears. For the last couple months, we've been enjoying the life of Jesus, his steps, his story, his testimony. We have been reading through how he interacts with people, how he interacts with children, how he interacts with the sick, how he interacts with those uh, that claim to know God, and how he interacts with those that are the outcasts of society. And it is a beautiful story every time you read it, whether it is loving, kind, meek, and humble, or whether Jesus shows the righteous indignation of pushing back against things that are ungodly. His life has been perfect, holy, strong, loving, and most of all, good. It has been good. And we've been going through that. But the end result is what? The end result is Good Friday. The end result is Passover. The end result is this wonderful man is crucified. Like that's the penalty for living a godly life. That's the penalty for never sinning against anyone, for never uh, uh, crossing ways with someone that didn't deserve it. I mean, like, really, not because they offended you or hurt your feelings. I'm talking about people that were genuinely sinful, genuinely wrong, and so the Lord will cross ways with them, but the leper, the outcast, the broken, he loved and he brought in, and the, the penalty for that kind of life is to be crucified. How can this be? Good Friday is so hard to even say in in a complete sentence. Can you imagine calling it Good Friday then? Can you imagine looking at Mary, the mother of Jesus, and calling it Good Friday? When she's just watched her son be crucified, beaten, stripped naked, mocked. Like all of these things going on. Can you imagine calling it then? But you and I now have the audacity to look back and say there was a plan and that was the one of the most glorious days in human history was the day that the Son of God, the Lamb of God, paid for our sins. But is it really to be crucified, right? Is this really how this is going to end? He loved the leopard and the child, the leper and the child and the broken and the sinner and yet this is his penalty. And there were hands there that day that held those nails, but only because Jesus Christ gave them breath to do it. There was a plan, there was a purpose, and it was executed. And so Jesus lands on that cross, and there are human hands that put them there, but the will of God, according to Isaiah 53, is what really put him there. The will of God, it was the will of God to crush him. It was the will of God to crush him. Why? Because in that righteous offering, you and I could be won back to God. That Jesus would pay our penalty, that he would pay the price for us. In the midst of all this pain, is this really how it's going to end? In the midst of the pain, there comes this glorious truth, resurrection. And it breaks through with hope and relief and strength and joy and determination. Is Good Friday really going to be how this ends? Is, is that silent Saturday, as it's been called throughout history, that silent Saturday where the body is in the tomb and the disciples are still in disarray and the women are broken and hurting and they're sobbing and they're crying and they're waiting for that Sabbath to end so they, they can get back to work. They wanted to prepare the body. They wanted to be a part of that process. They wanted uh, Jesus to be honored in his death. And so on that Saturday, it is Sabbath. They cannot work. They're resting. They're waiting. And can you imagine, when's the last time you had to sit still and wait for something that 
yesterday was bad news, and now you don't know what's going on or how it's going to work out. It's a very hopeless feeling to be broken like that. You're waiting on some kind of test result. Uh, This week for us, it was a toddler being hurt and wondering how bad that injury was really going to be as he limped around on it for the next couple days. There's a very hard waiting process when you've had bad news and there's nothing you can do, but there are things that you want to do. That is the idea of Silent Saturday. The body is in the grave. Chaos is everywhere. The things these people have believed in have been taken from them. And remember, they still don't understand what Jesus was trying to tell them. And so they're doing so with the confusion of their own broken hearts. That's one of the things that I I push back against with the the story of, we call him Doubting Thomas, right? Remember the story of Doubting Thomas, what happens, right? All the other disciples get to see Jesus uh, first. Thomas is one of the last ones to see him. And when he walks in, they say, we've seen him. And he says, I will not believe unless I touch his hands, the scars in his hands, touch his side, right? Remember that story? And we call him Doubting Thomas. Do you realize that in a chapter before in John, he was the only one that said, let's go to Jerusalem with Jesus. We'll die with him. Like if they're going to kill him, let's just go and get it over with. We'll die with him. Could it be possible that Doubting Thomas is really broken hearted Thomas? Would you grieve in that moment a story that you didn't understand? Somebody come in and said, your loved one is healed, and you would say, I don't believe it until I see it. Now, it's a different one for this one because this loved one had been resurrected. But even if somebody were to walk into your home and say, hey, so-and-so that was sick last week, they are up and moving and walking, and you would say, I can't believe that. I just saw them last week. They were broken and hurt. Didn't look like they were going to recover. I can't believe that unless I see them. Thomas says, let's go with him to Jerusalem. If they're going to kill him, they can kill us too. And then he's brokenhearted and he's hurting. Can this really be the way it ends? We're going to read Luke chapter 24 together this morning. We're just going to enjoy the resurrection story. And then I want to do with a little bit of time left is... um, Jewish rabbis call it string and pearls, like we've talked about this before, where you go back and you start to see pieces of something glorious. And the rabbis would go and they would get one piece and then they would string it together to another one. And they would call that stringing pearls. They were bringing in uh, the story of God in a way that they had seen fragmented. I want to do that this morning. And I want to do it out of Luke chapter 24, because to me it looks like that's what Jesus does twice in this passage. Read it with me. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Verse 4, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? Friends, it is impossible to worship a dead Jesus. He is not here. And I think by the time we finish this morning, you and I are going to be able to finish that statement with, neither are any of my fears. The Lord has taken them all with him. He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words after living through them. Aren't you glad for the grace of God? He told them this. They were still brokenhearted. Then after living through it, they are reminded. And then they say, oh, yeah, (laughs) 
If I'd have been listening earlier, this would have been a little easier. If I'd had ears to hear or eyes to see what my Lord was trying to tell me. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them like an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen uh, cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Verse 13. This is where this story gets very, very interesting. The very, uh, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, uh, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Like, are you some kind of idiot? Right? Is your head in the sand? Are you really brand new? Because we need to have a conversation. Like, I'm going to catch you up on some stuff. And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all of this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Friends, there's, when you and I understand that there, there's some room for mystery in the ways of God, we will be a lot better off as his believers and as his followers. Why? Because their hope was he was going to deliver Israel. Guess what he did? Delivered them. Guess what they didn't understand? Who the enemy was. Who was the real tyrant that, need to, that they needed to be delivered from? Was not Rome and was not Caesar? Was not Pontius Pilate or anybody else in the story? The real problem is the tyrant within, the sinful flesh, the one in us that really makes us do wicked and vile things. The one in us that is really in conflict with God is not a government official or a government in general. It is you and I alone with him. If they had only understood what was really uh, going on, what the plan really was, they would have understood better these days of struggle. Verse 22, Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Boy, what a Bible study that was. Can you imagine the one that wrote it explaining it? Like, let me show you me. Here, 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 and here. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward, uh, it is toward the evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. 
And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Do not, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed. And he has appeared to Simon. And they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Verse 36. And they were talking about these things. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is as I myself touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate it before them. I love how Jesus resets the whole moment by asking for just a simple need. There's, there's significant power in understanding the role of the flesh and the body and how we reset hard moments with a nap, a rest, a good time together, a laugh, a meal, a cry. Jesus understands that. So they are freaking out. And what does he do? He resets them with uh, an act of service and an act of something that's going to deal with the physical. We really are here. I really am here. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. We do ourselves a major disservice when we don't look at the Old Testament and read through it. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus shows up and Jesus conquers every enemy. The disciples and the followers are not perfect yet. They will not be perfect until they go home to glory, but they are getting their feet under them right now. You and I sit in a church today. We claim to be Christian. Someone shared with you the gospel that is also attached to them. You and I are related spiritually to the people in this moment. Had they not made the choices that they would make next, had God not built the church like he did right there, you and I would not be here. Tremendous faith is being built by seeing and being with a physically resurrected Jesus Christ. Like groups of people don't have hallucinations together. Even if they're in the same room, their their hallucination is not the same. That theory doesn't work. These people were sitting in, learning, living with, and loving their resurrected Lord that a couple days prior to that they had watched get beaten have his beard pulled out, have a crown of thorns rammed on his head, be mocked as a false king and crucified. Later on to have a spear run through his side where blood and water flowed. And then to have him wrapped up and laid in a tomb. There is a lot going on here. 
But as Jesus does twice in this passage, he takes the the disciples back in Scripture, and I want to do that with you very fast this morning. Pictures, pearls, and promises through Scripture. Where do we see resurrection pictures throughout the Scripture? I want to show you a couple this morning that I think will bless you wherever you're at and whatever you're going through. Number one, Genesis chapter 3. The resurrection for Adam and Eve meant what? That no matter how bad we've messed something up, the Lord can make a way. All the way back to our parents that had complete free will. They were born with no sin nature. They were, they were created. They, they, they fellowshiped with God. And yet one was deceived and the other chose evil. And what happens next? God clothes them and God kicks them out of the garden. Part of the reason to be removed from the garden was so they couldn't eat from the tree of life anymore. They would forever be stuck in their sins. Instead, there would have to be punishment for the sin. But in this way, with God's promise that through the seed of woman, a Savior was going to come, and He was going to crush the enemy's head, and the enemy was going to bite his heel. Through resurrection, what's there going to be? There is going to be a way forward. The Lord is making a way. In Genesis 7 and 8, what happens with Noah? The resurrection is the promise that the door of the ship has been sealed by God. And you know what else? There's no rudder. Noah's not at the helm steering this baby in. The door is shut by God, it is sealed by God, and it is steered by the Lord. Resurrection is the promise that even when all is bleak and death is everywhere, that the Lord is taking care of you. You have been sealed up. Your ship is being steered. You and I need to rest in that glorious truth. Noah found favor with God. So have you and I. When he got off that boat, it was like a resurrection. Why? There are no other people. They're all gone. What happens next? How about Genesis 14 through chapter 25? Abram into Abraham. Resurrection assures that God's endless promise will not be broken. God makes a promise to Abram. God makes a promise to Abraham. I'm going to give you a son and your descendants are going to be like the stars of the sky. Guess what? Abraham's 90 and still no baby. Like things are looking downhill. They're going downhill quick, right? Like wife's a little older too, right? This is going to be a miracle, Lord. And guess what they have? A son. And guess how Abraham operates as if that son is many. There is a chapter, and I'm not going to be able to spit it out. It might be chapter 17. There's a chapter where it says Abraham uh, or Abram planted a tamarisk tree. And what that picture is, is that tree serves no purpose but shade. But guess how long it takes to get big enough to be shady? Longer than Abraham will be alive. Longer than probably his son will be alive. Abraham plants a tree in faith knowing that his descendants are going to live under that tree. They're going to rest under that tree. Resurrection is the idea that God's promise will not be broken. The Lord has promised you and I eternal life. He also promised Abraham uh, uh, someone on his seed would sit on the throne forever. Resurrection is the only way that comes true. Jesus Christ is on the throne. Every other man is going to die. How about with Isaac? 
Genesis 17, Genesis 21, Genesis 22. Resurrection is both the hope of birth and rebirth, that our life and sacrificial payment aren't ours to bear. What happens in Genesis 17? God promises a son. What happens in Genesis 21? There's about a 20, 25-year difference between the two. God provides the son. What happens in Genesis 22? There's about a 12 to 15-year difference there. And God tells Abraham, take your son up on the mountain and sacrifice him. What happens in that passage? Isaac gets loaded up. He's carrying the wood. He's going up where God has called. Abraham, in his mind, I don't know if he tells him what's going to happen. I don't think he does because Isaac asks a question later, like, where's the, where's the animal for the sacrifice, Dad? Don't worry, the Lord will provide is the response. And what, what does that mean? I don't know what's going through Abraham's head. God gave me a son out of nothing before. I'm going to listen to what he has to say. He's never let me down. And if he makes me follow through, then he'll resurrect him right there or... I don't know what's going to go on. Get to the top, what happens? That obedience is taken care of. The son is wrapped up. He is laid on that altar for sacrifice. And right before Abraham follows through, what happens? Says the angel of the Lord calls out, stops his hand. And over in the thicket is the animal God has provided. Let me tell you something about that passage that I think is fascinating. If the angel of the Lord is Jesus Christ which many scholars believe so. Every time you read that in the Old Testament, that's Jesus showing up. Every time you see God physically in the Old Testament, that's Jesus showing up. If Jesus shows up, Jesus stops the hand that's going to sacrifice the son. Why? Because he is the only son that will ever actually be sacrificed. Jesus shows up in the Old Testament and saves one that doesn't even know what's going on. Your life and your sacrifice, resurrection proves, the resurrection of Jesus proves it's not yours to pay. What he taught has been confirmed. What he taught was, I'm the lamb. Stop struggling, friend, to pay for your own sins. You're never going to make it right with God, and you'll be lucky to make it right with whoever is upset with you in this world. Repent, change, turn the opposite direction. If you don't know God, turn to Him. Repent, lean in, get that new birth. Make Him your King and Savior. But Christian, if you are struggling today, you need to understand you were saved by grace and you live by grace, just like Isaac. How about Genesis 33 and 45? Two of the greatest passages in all of Scripture show the heart of God unlike anything you and I can understand. Jacob and later his ten sons are going to run into somebody that has better character than they do. What has Jacob done? He has defrauded his brother and he's ran for his life. For years he has been exiled from his family and now God has told him to go home. And you know who he has to face when he gets home? An angry, older brother and you know what he has every right to be angry Jacob the liar Jacob the deceiver has stolen his birthright has fled and now he's coming back resurrection is the removal of fear and the grace of running into a character better than 
your own. What happens later on at the end of Genesis, his 10 sons will go through the same thing because what have they done to Joseph? Be careful the seeds that you and I sow as parents. Be careful the habits you and I sow as parents. Why? Because your children will have a way of repeating them. Jacob has sold out his family. He has sold out his brother. Jacob's sons, after he is Israel, will do the same thing. Genesis 45, his sons find out that that little brother they kicked out because he was a snot-nosed, braggadocious imbecile. Right? He talked a little too much. Doesn't mean stuff wasn't true. It just means he talked a little too much. They've sold him into slavery. He has gone into Egypt and he has ascended just below Pharaoh. It is Pharaoh and then it is Joseph. And now his brothers are going to find out that it's Joseph they've been dealing with. They're going to run into a character that is better than than theirs and they have failed it. They have broken relationship. They deserve death. The redemption of deserving death but receiving life. Instead of deserved condemnation, they get grace. That's what the resurrection shows for you and I as well. Joseph's brothers deserve to die. Jacob deserved to die. But instead, they got another day. And not only that, they got forgiveness and love and care. The resurrection of Jesus sets you and I up to live that same way. What about Joseph? Genesis 35 to 50. He was as good as dead. They've tossed him in a pit. They're going to kill him. Then they say, no, let's sell him for some money. We'll sell him into slavery, and we'll make a little bit of money off of this. Remember that story? They take his coat off. They cover it in blood, take it back to their father, and what? He's dead. We don't know what happened. We didn't see him, but all that's left is this coat with some blood on it. Right? You put the pieces together. So what happens with Joseph? He is as good as dead, but yet what happens next? He is better than alive. Joseph as a servant, Joseph in prison, Joseph in the palace. Tremendous character, tremendous faith. God uses him. And as he was resurrected from the dead, at the end of the book of Genesis, the nation of Israel is blessed in its early stages. Why? Because Joseph had a character like God's. Man, the end of that book, the end of Genesis is beautiful to read. Because Joseph's father's still living, right? So, he's, so the other brothers are worried that as soon as the father dies, that Joseph is going to turn on them. The only reason he's been so nice is because dad is still living. The father dies. Israel dies in that passage. And his brothers come in and they start to weep and ask for forgiveness again. And Joseph looks at them and says, What you intended for evil, God intended for good. I have been able to save not only you, but basically the whole world in my position under Pharaoh. As good as dead, the resurrection of Jesus gives you and I that same kind of power. From slave to a prince, from dead, maybe in a dungeon where you're at right now, maybe something bad is going on, but listen, friends, you are a prince or a princess of heaven. And you just haven't been able to realize it yet. You're clouded 
It's, it's the time of pruning. It's the time of struggle. And it's just really hard to think about. How about Moses, Exodus 1 and 2? Resurrection was to be born in bondage, destined for death, but rescued by royalty with no allegiances to you. What happens with Moses? He is born in bondage. He is a slave and he is born in Egypt. But his mother, instead of handing him over to be killed to the Egyptians, what does she do? Remember she builds the little boat? They lay the baby in it and they float him out. And what happens next? Like resurrection from dead in that river out into life. He is taken into what? The palace of Egypt. He is redeemed. He is bought. He is taken by royalty that owed him no allegiance. Friends, that's a picture of our salvation too. You and I have been adopted into the kingdom of God. Those Egyptian slaves or that Egyptian princess could as easily grab that baby and toss it in the Nile like they did so many others. But instead, they had compassion. They showed favor. And out of that water come life. Out of that water come potential that they never knew was going to be there. That looks like salvation. Jesus' resurrection opens that up for you and I as well. How about Israel in chapters 1 to 14? What happens there? Resurrection is to be born in bondage, just like Moses, fought for and redeemed, to leave surrounded by the enemy, and yet come out of that baptism alive. God opens that sea. They walk through that sea. They come out the other side well and blessed. It is a picture of resurrection. They should have been dead. Instead, they are alive. Numbers 21 is, the, is the, the, the brass serpent on the pole. Look up and believe. What happens is they've been griping. They've been nasty. They've been murmuring. So the snakes have come through, bit them, and they're dying. And what does God say? Look at the bronze serpent. In faith and be saved. As good as dead but resurrected, Jesus would take that place ultimately as one lifted up cursed on a tree so that you and I would look at him and be saved. Look at him in faith and be saved. Resurrection is a second chance to live in faith by looking on that bronze serpent and believing. It is a second chance of living. You have lived your life unsaved. You have lived your life not knowing God. You've probably made a mess. Your friends have made messes. You've been selfish, angry, nasty, needy. You've been all of these things. And the moment of salvation, that new heart inside of you, is a chance to live again. It is a second chance to live in a way that blesses others and loves them and takes care of them too. Ruth, Naomi, Boaz, the story of Ruth. Resurrection is hope of tomorrow. For the all is lost. Naomi, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. I've lost my whole family. God has taken them and made me bitter. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Ruth, the Moabite, the outcast, the nobody, the one that shouldn't be in the lineage of Jesus, makes her way into it. And Boaz, the godly man that's probably a little too old, his life is probably done. All the blessings he have are lived up in the field or given to his servants. He's a godly man. He is a good man. But the Lord has one trick left. He's going to give him a son and a lineage and one that lives even to this day. Why? Because David comes in that lineage and Solomon comes in that lineage and eventually Jesus comes in that lineage. 
picture of Ruth is resurrection. The gift of a future is resurrection. 1 Samuel, 1 Chronicles, and Psalms, you see David. Resurrection is the joy of being someone even as the smallest, the youngest, or the forgotten. Jesus has something for you to do. Psalm 51, so many times we worry about what it looks like to know if somebody's being sincere in their apology, sincere in their repentance. Go read Psalm 51. I wanted to do it with you this morning, but I'm not going to because of time. Go read Psalm 51. I want to know if someone is real in their repentance. Go read David's heart in that passage. Against you and you alone, God, have I sinned. Return to me the joy of your salvation. David is a picture of resurrection. Not only in who he was as the youngest of brothers and somebody overlooked to, be, to ascend, to be so strong and mighty and so well thought of later in life, but also because he had failed miserably and the Lord could forgive him and God still calls him a man after my own heart. Scripture has that put in there so you and I will forget. How about Esther and Daniel? Resurrection is the freedom to do the right thing in the midst of the wrong company. Young ones, are you listening? If you know Jesus' freedom, that resurrection, that love and that care, you are free to do the right thing even when the company doesn't want you to. Esther, Daniel, and others show that. How about Job? Job, in Job, resurrection is the hope that we've been taken, uh, that what's been taken can be restored. Have you lost something? Lost someone so dear. Resurrection is the hope that one day that will be restored. There will be never an amount of days to spend with that person again. Why? Because infinity doesn't end, and you can let your mind wrap around that as long as you want. You can spend a thousand days together, and there'll be a thousand more to come, and there'll be a million more to come, and time is just going to stop, right? Are you tired yet? Because my mind's hurting. In the infinite nature of God, there will be no stopping. Resurrection is the hope that what has been taken can be given back. I've always wondered about the story of Job, right? He had ten children. They're all killed. Everything else God gave back, but those children weren't resurrected. The problem with that concept is it's a short-term view. Why? Because Job didn't die with ten kids. He died with twenty. Ten waiting to meet him and ten that would meet him later. Resurrection is the hope that what has been taken will be restored. Resurrection is the fulfillment of one of our great prayer grievances. God is not a man like me that we can argue back and forth. That's in the book of Job. And he goes on to cry out with that beautiful, beautiful, grief-stricken idea. There's no one that can put his hand on him and put his hand on me and mitigate this issue. There's no arbiter between God and man. That's the cry of Job's heart. If he only knew who was coming a couple thousand years later. Ecclesiastes with Solomon. Resurrection is the rescue from life's meaninglessness. Futility of futilities. All things are futile. They mean nothing. Vanity of vanities. All things are vain. They mean nothing. What is resurrection? It is the idea that every day matters. Because ultimately, at the end of his life, Solomon would say, the end of all is this. Enjoy what you do, but know you're going to give an account to God. Live your life, but know you're going to live again, and you're going to give an account to God. How about Daniel for Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in that book? Right, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Resurrection is to walk out of the fire having met your Lord without even a sniff of smoke. 
Resurrection is walking out of the fire without even a sniff of smoke. We had a call the other night. I haven't been on a structure fire in a while, not inside anything where my gear should stink like fire, right? But we had a call the other night. I put it on. We walk into the house. The lady's worried about some CO stuff, so we're there to check it out. She gets in behind me, and I hear her go, ooh. She she still thought something was wrong. It was my gear. I'm like, no, that's me. You're good. Like, your house is fine, ma'am. It's not going to blow up, right? That's just my gear stinking. Bible's clear. They come out of that fiery furnace and didn't even smell like smoke. Friends, sometimes your character is being pushed. Sometimes the pains that have been doled out on you, somebody has wronged you. They've been tremendously evil to you. And when you step out of that situation, you will never understand what kind of example you are because you don't smell like bitterness. God help us, you don't smell like the world. You don't even smell the smoke. How about Daniel 3 and 4 for Nebuchadnezzar? What happens there? Resurrection is the rotation from an idol. He builds himself an idol, an idol, and God makes him an animal. Go eat grass in the field like an animal for a year or two. So what happens then? He goes from unreasonable animal to reasonable worshiper of God. I, I think one of the most fascinating days in heaven is going to be to meet that guy. I don't know, but when you read Scripture, there's a real possibility that he come to faith in God and what God was going to do, just like an Old Testament saint. He looks up, he worships the Lord, and the Lord returns to him his reasonableness. Listen, it is nothing, it is nothing to say you and I, unsaved or saved but living carnally, don't live like an animal. It is absolutely true. If you've talked to anybody that's been in sin, living in sin, especially certain kinds of sin, two and two don't make four anymore, they're like seven and a half, I can do what I want. It's not a big deal. It doesn't matter that my kids are suffering. It doesn't matter that my family's suffering. It doesn't matter that my church is suffering. None of that stuff matters. They live like an animal. My needs, my desires, right now, that's all I care about. How about for Jonah? Resurrection is a second chance to do the right thing, even if you have the wrong heart. Jonah gets another shot. His heart don't change. And the book just leaves it like that way too. I think it's a warning for you and I. You and I could see God do some really cool things and yet not be happy about it. Or how about for Peter? Mark 16 tells the resurrection story too. It would have been from Peter's perspective. Mark 16, 7 says this. The angel says, go tell the disciples and Peter. I love that. Why? Because Peter was the big mouth that told Jesus, I'll die with you. The rest of these losers might pack it up and go, but I'm here to stay. I will die with you tonight. You ready? Let's do this. And what happens a couple minutes later? He is denying the Lord to a servant girl the first time. Right? The 12-year-old come up like, oh, weren't you with Jesus? No, I was not. I am very scared right now. Right? So Peter's perspective, go tell the disciples and Peter. Resurrection is a second chance to do the right thing with the right heart. The end of John shows Jesus bringing Peter back into fellowship properly, properly, and it is a beautiful picture. It's a chance to reach for that hug or to reach your potential. Resurrection is the chance to reach for that hug, to love on someone, to, to do it right again. It's also a chance, a second chance to reach your potential. Peter had not reached his potential yet. Resurrection was his chance to do it. For Mary... Joanna, Luke 24, resurrection is the reminder you don't find the living among the dead. 
It is the reminder you can't love a dead Jesus. Those three days are long gone. He is alive. For the disciples on the road in the passage we just read, resurrection means opened eyes, a burning heart, and feet that got to move. What happens in that passage? They finish a seven-mile journey. They look at Jesus and say, hey, the road is dangerous. Won't you chill with us tonight? And then tomorrow when it's daylight, you can go about your business. What happens when they run into Jesus? They open their own door, slam it behind them, and run seven miles in the dark and danger back to Jerusalem. Because what do they need to tell? They need to tell the story. We have seen him, and it was worth the risk. Don't talk your children out of doing tough things. Don't talk your children out of doing things that are godly. God help us. If we raise up missionaries around here and they come in and they tell you God is calling them somewhere to do that, don't talk them out of doing dangerous things. Sometimes that is exactly what God is calling them to do. These disciples got out in the dark, out in the danger, and ran seven miles back just to tell the good news. Resurrection of Jesus means opened eyes, a burning heart, and feet that got to move. 1 Corinthians 15, James, Jude, and for the hater, what happens? Resurrection is the chance to be reconciled. James is Jesus' half-brother. Jude is Jesus' half-brother. They do not believe in him until they run into a resurrected Jesus. It's a chance for reconciliation. As they come this morning to play, what about me and you? Resurrection is a fact to be believed. If you don't care about the factual nature of the resurrection, your Christian life is built on quicksand. Why? Because, well, the Bible affirms the resurrection bodily. So if you're not interested in that or you don't think it's important, technically you don't think Scripture is important. Resurrection is a fact to be believed. If Jesus is risen from the dead and he calls himself the first fruit, then who is to follow? Me and you, hopefully. Me, for sure. Like, I, I can say that with confirmation. How about you? The resurrection is a fact to be believed. It anchors our life. It is strength to be gleaned from. It's hope to be shared. And it's glory to be praised. And friends, every morning you open your eyes and roll out of bed, you are getting a small picture of a resurrection. You have another minute, another hour, another day. You have another chance to reconcile between you and God, to reconcile between you and others, to love others well. You have another day to be a blessing, not a curse. You have another day, another minute to be on mission like Jesus. Every morning is a resurrection. You roll out of that bed as if you were dead and you come into existence ready to shape and change. You have a mission to be on. And so many of us are just worried about what's the next fix or, or, or the shower we got to get or work that we dread and we got to go to or school that we hate. This is all much more than that when you roll out of that bed you are on mission for the God of the universe and like a resurrected Jesus you are now walking around as his ambassador stand with me this morning if you don't know him today is the day you want to come while they play you want to talk or ask questions you do that but right now Christian you need to understand he's not there and neither are any of your fears let them go he's conquered all of them